I'm going to let the uh, children be dismissed at this time for junior church. Both groups are going today. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And uh, we're going to begin reading this morning in verse 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to begin reading in verse 12. The word of the Lord. Everything is permissible for me. And I want you to notice that these statements are in quotes. Okay, just look for the quotation marks. You get an idea of where where Paul is coming from in terms of responding to an attitude that is prevalent in the church, in the body of Christ, in Corinth. Everything is permissible for me. But not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food. But God will destroy both of them. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By His power, God raised the Lord from the dead and He will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ Himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with the prostitute? Never! Do you not know that He unites Himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with Him in spirit. The topic of my discussion this morning is this. Honor God with your body. What, with, what you do with your physical body has ramifications that affect testimony and that affect directly the body of Christ. We live in a culture of self-gratification. Uh, a culture that says if your body has certain appetites and desires, then those appetites and desires are natural, and therefore it's okay to fulfill them in whatever way you would like. It's fascinating that as you go back 2,000 years into a city called Corinth, you find that that same attitude of do what pleases you, do what satisfies you, is also prevalent at that time. A lot of times we think that the uh, cultural pattern towards an amorality is something new. It's a sign of the end time. In fact, it is a sign of sinfulness. Not purely a sign of the end time. It is part of the habit of humanity apart from God. We have a tendency to drift away from God, and the church has a tendency to allow the culture it lives in to seep into our way of thinking. And our biblical norms and biblical principles eventually become threatened by patterns that are pervasive in the culture. In this text, Paul is writing to the church to say to them, it is not appropriate to say that everything is permissible for you. Likely that Paul is combating a tendency to see freedom in Christ, which we have as license or permission to do whatever one wants to do. Paul's saying, if that's what you heard when I said you are free in Christ, you misunderstood what I was saying. And so as he writes to them here, he's going to give specific quotations. You find quotation marks. It is very likely that those are statements that the people in Corinth are making as justification for behavior that is causing them to be like the world around them. The danger that he's addressing is the tendency for the world to seep into and affect and contaminate the life of those that are to live holy before God. 
few months ago, I pulled an article off of Boston.com. Probably it was footnoted on the Drudge Report, which I look at on a daily basis. It said this, just roommates. That kind of got my attention. The article says something like this. It says, in the Woodstock era, the advent of co-ed dorms caused a stir. How many of you remember that? When the idea of having co-ed dorms was put out there and it was, there was a, a reaction from the culture. It caused a stir with Life magazine proclaiming the development and intimate revolution on campus. Co-ed floors came along over the next two decades, giving college students immediate proximity to each other. The next step, co-ed suites, co-ed bathrooms, brought the sexes even closer together. Now, some colleges are crossing the final threshold, allowing men and women to share rooms. How many of you have heard about this? Okay, it's fascinating, isn't it, that the world kind of lets these changes occur, but tries to keep it under the radar. So you might find it on an obscure website like Boston.com. Many students at many colleges, and it starts to list colleges like University of Pennsylvania, Skidmore, Ithaca College, Oregon State, and on and on it goes. Students are rallying together and are calling for what they call gender-blind dormitory rooms. It is definitely a growing movement across the country on campuses, says Denise Darragant. Dean of Students at Clark, where about 30 students are living in mixed-gender rooms. And here's what they say for justification. It's a new world, and gender has taken on all kinds of new definitions. It's about being more inclusive. It's about keeping pace with the times. Okay? In other words, if you have a negative response to the idea of girls and boys living together in college rooms, young men and women living together in college rooms, you need to get over it. Okay? You need to get in touch with the times that you live in and realize that this is the direction things are going in. Supporters hailed the trend as a key advance for homosexual and transgender students that eliminates a gender divide they see as outdated, particularly for a generation that has grown up with many friends of the opposite sex. Traditional rooming policies, they say, infringe upon students' rights and perpetuate gender segregation. Fascinating, isn't it? So if you believe that guys and girls shouldn't live together prior to marriage, uh, you're out of touch. And the one word they use is pur Puritan. Okay? You're kind of like the Puritans who are overly restrictive and simply don't believe that God wants people to have fun. So this morning, a, an interesting challenge emerges from this text. The call is honor God with your body in a world that is saying what you do with your body is it's irrelevant. It's not that important. Don't make such a big deal about it. Okay? It, it downplays these natural inclinations and appetites and tries to make them just expressions of humanity. And the church has a tendency to be affected by that attitude. Paul says in verse 12, a quotation from the Corinthians, everything is permissible for me. And, and there's a sense in which Paul may be saying, yes, I did say that you have freedom in Christ, but, but that doesn't mean that everything you do is necessarily helpful for your Christian experience. So Paul's quoting that. Everything is beneficial. Oh, yes, but not everything is beneficial and helpful for the Christian experience. Technically, it may be legal and allowable. That doesn't mean that it has a beneficial effect. 
Second part of the verse, he quotes it again. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Paul's thrust is this. I will refuse to allow myself to be enslaved to the appetites of my flesh because if I do that, I cannot be ultimately a servant of Christ. He then goes on in verse 13 to give us another quotation from Corinth. Food is for the stomach and the stomach for food. Okay? Now, where are they going with this? Where are they going with this? Food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. Okay? In the context, the discussion is about moral purity. That's clearly the discussion. What are they trying to do? Trying to equate natural appetites with the physical body. Okay? As food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, so sexuality is for the body and the body is for sexuality. It's of little consequence, in other words. Okay? Try to show a direct correlation, a biological correlation between the appetites and the body. The attempt is to say that sexuality is not an issue of right and wrong. It's not an issue of morality. Okay, And Paul is reacting to those statements by saying that sexuality, the relationship between men and women, is not amoral. It is not without moral consequence and effect. And a culture that believes that it is, is destined to be destroyed. His argument in verse 13 is this. Notice how he says it. God will destroy both of them. That is, the relationship between your stomach and food is a temporal relationship. The relationship between your body and what you do with it in regards to morality is not temporary. Okay, It has eternal ramifications. It has eternal principles and teaching at stake. And that's the direction that Paul's going to move in in this text. So, He begins with a bit of a caution. Don't let the culture you live in dilute or affect your basic convictions about the Christian life. Okay, and it's important to keep up with articles like that that tell us that the culture is moving and the church has a tendency to move just behind the culture. And as long as we're not where the culture is, we think that we're living the life that God wants us to live. Do you understand that? As long as the culture is... If if the culture moves to a more excessive level of immorality, and the church shifts to where the culture used to be because we're not right where the culture is. We think that we're actually living a holy life. Okay, and Paul is writing to the church, calling them to realize that they are to honor God with their body, that they have a God-given responsibility to do that. Now, he could simply condemn the immorality that is present, but he goes beyond that. He doesn't simply say, stop being immoral, although that is a clearly a summary statement here. Stop being immoral with your body. Honor God with your body. It is a vehicle that He gave you to glorify Him in. So live for His glory in the body that He's given you. But He doesn't stop there. He gives them some rationale for understanding how they can pursue using their body, their physical instrument they live in, for the glory of God. And let me just give you five simple reasons that emerge from this text. Reason number one is that, or, or, or ways. First way is this. Remember that passions, appetites, those naturally occurring desires that you have, can dominate your life. Okay, the natural appetites that you have can dominate and enslave your life. Notice how Paul says this in verse 12. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not allow myself to be mastered by anything. 
to be master literally means to bring under the power and control of external influences or appetites. Okay? Paul says, yes, God has given humanity a, an appetite for experiencing intimacy with someone of the opposite sex. But, I will not allow my life to be ruled by or governed by that appetite. God has given the human body an appetite for food. But, Paul is saying it is inappropriate for people to live to eat. You eat to live, but you don't live your life with the desire to eat at the forefront. Okay, now, I know that I do. Okay, publicly uh, confess that and strive to fight against it. But Paul's basic principle is this. Remember that passions, God-given appetites, if they're not used and expressed within God-given boundaries, can take control of your life. Here's what most people think. They dabble in things thinking that if I express myself a little bit in an area that is out of bounds, I'll weaken that temptation. Meaning this, satisfy it and it'll go away. Okay? In no area of life is that less true than it is in regards to sexuality. In no area in life is it less true than it is in sexuality. Okay? And what is Paul saying? Remember, if you mess with sexual temptation, it will flip things over and you will not be in control. It will control your life. Okay? Paul's statement is, you're saying, you know, everything is permissible. But Paul's saying what? I will not let myself be mastered by anything. I will not live outside of God-given boundaries because if I do, those appetites that are God-given and have a context for expression will begin to control my life. And if they control my life, God can't. Paul's conviction, I will not allow myself to be mastered by anything. And so the warning is uh, given, and I think it's very, very clear. Appetites have the ability to dominate your life. Number two, your body has a God-given purpose and design. Look at verse 13. Food is for the stomach and the stomach for food. But God will destroy them both. They have a temporal or temporary ramification. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality because that's the specific issue at hand here, morality. Paul says the body was not given to you for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So the second principle that emerges is this. Your body has a God-given purpose and design. It belongs to Him. Your body was given to you by the Lord and it is to be used for His glory. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 31, which we'll come to in probably about two months. It says, whether therefore you eat or drink, physically with your body, do it all to the glory of God. Every appetite that God has given you is to be expressed within the boundaries that God has established for it. God gave you your physical body as the instrument in which you have the capacity and privilege of serving Him. The goal is not the satisfaction of appetites. It's not pleasure-seeking. It's not, as he says very clearly, for sexual immorality. Instead, your body is for the Lord. Ideas here, it is for His interest. It is owned by Him. It is created by Him. It is designed by Him. And therefore has God-given functions and purposes. Folks, I don't know if you ever think about this, but this is a fascinating thought. Your body has a God-honoring purpose. You are to use it and to exercise it in a way that would bring glory to the Creator of it. The body is for the Lord. It is a gift that He gave you. You don't have the right to abuse it, to misuse it. It is given to you by the Lord. 
And I believe that Paul leans this application, particularly in regards to sexuality. There is a God-given context for expressing sexuality. Sexual immorality is not the context. Marriage is the context, as we will see in two weeks. Your master is to be honored by your body because your master has honored you with a body. Say, Pastor Tim, how do I use my body in a way that glorifies God? Read the manual. Okay, read what God says about the use of your physical vessel. Don't let the culture around you determine what is right and wrong for you. Because the culture around you says, whatever appetites you have, whatever desires you have, feel free to express yourself. And the idea is that you have a body for your own pleasure-seeking, for your own satisfaction. For a Christian, it's upside down. We have been given a body by God, and we are to use that body to live for the glory and honor of God in all that we do. Okay, so Paul, in verse 13, strikes back. The body is not for immorality. The body is from the Lord, and it is for the benefit of the Savior. To abuse it is to dishonor Him. We need to learn God's purpose and design for our body and allow Him to rule and govern our lives. I can fight against the encroachment of the culture. Thirdly, if I remember that the relationship between my body and God, if I've trusted Christ, the relationship between my body and God is eternal, not temporal. See, in the Greek world, here's what they thought. They thought that the body was amoral. It, it was irrelevant. It was just part of the physical earth. What really mattered was your spirit. Okay, The spirit is what was going to live forever, so the body was thought of as irrelevant, not having any moral ramifications. Some philosophers said it like this, the body is a corpse that you are chained to. So if your view of the body is that it doesn't have any moral consequence, then whatever you do with your body becomes permissible. It's, it's irrelevant. And so you had people who would go in two ways. You had the ascetics who would beat their body so that it wouldn't have any negative effect on their spirit. And then you had people that lived in great liberty who said, you know what, if the body is of no consequence, then I can do whatever I want with it. Okay, and both mindsets had snuck into the context of the church in Corinth. And Paul's writing to say this, the relationship between your physical body and God matters and it has eternal consequence. So if you go ahead into verse, I believe it is verse 14, he says, by His power, God raised the Lord from the dead and He will raise us also. Okay? When Christ was raised from the dead, what happened to His body? His physical body, what happened to it? He was raised from the dead, he lived in it, functioned in it, ministered in it, and then what? He ascended into heaven ever so to remain. In what? In a physical body. There is a permanent correspondence between the life of Jesus and his physical expression on earth. He always was God. He became man, still God, and now man. And there is this eternal ramification that Jesus Christ has. He lives in a body a perfected, glorified, raised body in which He redeemed us from sin. And every person who lives in this earth has a physical body and everyone who has trusted Christ will experience eternity in that body resurrected and glorified by God. So what is Paul saying? He's saying you can't say that that body which one day resurrected and glorified in which you will stand before God is irrelevant. No, it has important ramifications. If I turn to Colossians chapter 3, I'll just read for you a passage of Scripture here real quickly. 
or Philippians, I'm sorry, Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21. Listen to what this says. Paul says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus, who, by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. Meaning, one day, if you've trusted Christ, your body will be reconstituted by God, and in that body you will stand before God. What is Paul saying then? Don't use that body for immorality. Use that body in, one, in which one day you will experience eternity for the glory of God. Why? Because there is an eternal connection between your physical body and God. Christ's resurrection was important, he's saying, but he will also raise you up and you will be transformed and you will be given a new body in which you are to glorify God. The psalmist put it this way. He said, in your presence is fullness of joy and eternal pleasures at your right hand. Job said it in this way. I know that in my flesh I will see God. That should have an effect on you. Do you think there's any connection between, Paul, uh, between Job saying, I know that in my flesh I will see God, and Job chapter 12 or 11 verse 2 when he says, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look upon a woman to lust. Why do you think Job said that? In understanding of the holiness of God. And he knew that one day in that physical body, he would stand before God. He saw an eternal connection between his behavior in the flesh and his existence with God forever. The Apostle Paul draws that exact correlation when he says, by his power he raised up Christ from the dead and he will raise you up also. And in that body, you will experience eternity before God. Paul saying, when you're tempted to sin in terms of sexuality, what is he saying? Think long term. Think long term. Honor God with your body in all areas of morality. Why? Think long term. One day you will stand before God in that body. God wants to be glorified in the use of our physical vessel. The next thought comes out of verse 16. And this, this is a bit shocking uh, Paul says, do you not know that he who unites himself with the prostitute is one with her in body? Then he goes all the way back to Genesis 2 and quotes, for it is said, the two become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one spirit with him. You know, let me just, if you're not familiar with the context of Corinth, this is the context. On the top of the hill outside of the city of Corinth, there was a temple to Aphrodite. Okay, we just make the connections to English words. The word aphrodisiac comes from this temple, this goddess of fertility. Okay, it was a temple where promiscuity was the norm. Okay, many estimates say that at that, te- at that temple of Aphrodite, there were a thousand prostitutes who at night would come down to the city and ply their trade. So in the church in Corinth, or in the city of Corinth, there was this perverse habit of people practicing worship in pagan settings in the context of prostitution. And some Greek scholars argue that there were some in the church based upon the tenses of the verb who were participating in that exact sin. And Paul is writing, in a sense, in a, in, in a revulsion, in a reaction. How dare you? And, and, and it's why he says, don't you know? 
that he who unites himself with a woman in prostitution is one with her in body. Becoming one flesh, violating God's purpose for sexuality. Now, the argument on the part of the people in Corinth is this. Sexuality is simply biological. Okay, go back to the argument. Like food is for the stomach, so the body is for sexuality. That's the, that's the argument. That's the argument, I believe, by the way, that is prevalent in our day. And what Paul's reacting to is the perversion that prostitution is. Because in prostitution, what's really happening? Someone pays for pleasure, someone gets monetary gain. That, to put it kind of at the brute level, that's all that's happening. Okay, someone get what's, gets what they want and another person gets what, gets what they want and it is a distortion of the God-given purpose for this unity that is shared in the act of marriage. And so number four is this, the act of marriage pictures the closest possible intimacy. Protect your body therefore, because if I allow my body to express itself outside of God's boundaries for morality, it distorts God's purpose. It is not simply biological, shallow, external, and superficial, as some would argue today. No, it is deeper than that. And it has deeper consequences than that. And see, the idea here is this. It's an attempt to say that in the context of prostitution, sexuality is basically casual. Okay, have you ever heard that term in terms of sexuality today? It's casual sex? What are, these, what are people saying? It's kind of irrelevant. It, it doesn't affect anything. It doesn't change anything. I think God is arguing in the Word of God that there is no such thing as the expression of sexuality without consequence. We live in a culture that is saying, oh, you can, you can experiment all you want and it won't have any consequence. Young people, I, I appeal to you in this regard. I, I have never had someone come to me after marriage and say, you know what, I have one regret. And that is that I have maintained sexual purity prior to marriage. Never had someone come and say that to me. But I can't tell you how many times I have had people come to me and say, I was unfaithful before marriage. And it is having a devastating effect upon my relationship. People in the context of marriage who just had casual acquaintances who are experiencing the devastating consequences. Why? Because you can't ignore God's Law, God's principles, the way He wired you and made you. The experience of intimacy in marriage is, is the... It, instead of someone getting what they want and someone getting monetary benefit, it builds, it develops, it enhances the relationship because that's the design of God. That basic principle cannot be successfully ignored. And I would beg of you, as young people, establish... Biblical principles. Don't let, as I said earlier, the world's definition of sexuality as being just an appetite of the flesh, don't let that seep into your God-given convictions. That that experience of intimacy is given by God to enhance and to develop and to build your marriage in the future. Don't waste it. Don't throw it away. Don't treat it lightly. What is he saying? The person that does that, they, at one level, they become one with that person and one with another and one with another. And what it does is it threatens the ability to have a relationship of fidelity and honor. Don't let the world's thinking in this regard seep into your Christian view. Okay, that's the conviction Paul's saying. It's not like food is for the stomach and the stomach for food. The body is for sex and sex for the body. There is not a correlation. It is not merely biological. It's not simply skin on skin. It is deeper. 
as designed by God, so that the two become at a unique level, one before God. A relationship which is incredibly precious and enhanced when sexuality is enjoyed. You know, what Paul's saying here is not, there is no room for sexuality. He's not being someone who's trying to rain on everybody's parade. He's saying, no, God's plan has a greater degree of satisfaction in store for you if you will wait and honor Him. Warren Wiersbe said it this way, when a man and woman join their bodies, the entire personality is involved. There is a much deeper experience, a oneness that brings with it deep and lasting consequences. It is not just part of the body. Being male and female involves the total person. Therefore, the sexual experience affects the total person. It is intimate by God's design. It is to be protected by God's design. And that's why Paul says here, abstain from immorality. Protect your heart in this regard. Don't let Satan get in there and get a foothold and create in your life an addiction that destroys your life. Paul says, what is Paul saying? I will not be mastered by anything. What is he saying? I will not become an addict, a slave to the passions of my flesh. Folks, you know what it takes to get there? It takes a Christian who is willing to fight, who is willing to unite with brothers and sisters and hold themselves accountable. That's what it takes. And an infilling of the Spirit of God as he talked about back at the end of, ver- uh, end of verse 11, by the Spirit of our God, okay, that you can become something that you have never been before for the glory and honor of God. In marriage, it is based on commitment and it enriches the relationship. Outside of marriage, it always has a destructive influence and effect. The last thought I'll leave you with this morning as in something to remember when you're fighting to be honorable before God with your body, remember, you never act independently of Jesus Christ. You never act independently of Jesus Christ in regards to the function of your body. If you have trusted Christ, you have been purchased by His shed blood. Your entire life, body, soul, and spirit, has become God's personal possession. And what that means is, you never go anywhere without Christ. You never do anything when Christ isn't present. Next time you're tempted, look at something you shouldn't look at. Listen to something you shouldn't listen to. Experience something physically that you shouldn't experience. Can you remember this? What I do is never independent. And it's never independent of two things. If you look at verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are, and listen to this, members of Christ Himself. Your bodies are part of Christ Himself. And that affects at two levels. It means that I have a relationship to Jesus Christ personally and I have a relationship to the body of Christ corporately. Sin in my life affects the body of Christ. Particularly immorality. And what Paul is saying I think is very clear. You are part of the body of Christ at large. Your behavior affects others. And you are one with Christ. And as he says it here at the end of Verse 17, he who who unites himself with the Lord, that is, by grace through faith, becoming a child of God's, he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. What does that mean? One with him in spirit, in purpose and in purity. When you come to trust Christ, you are united to him, you become one with him, you never do anything without him. Do you see? 
That's what Paul's saying. When you're tempted to let the principles of the world seep into your moral convictions, remember, every act you commit is you acting as part of the body of Christ and in union with Christ. Why is Paul saying that? So that you and I would think in terms of immorality and say, I can't go there. Why? Because I can't go there alone. Wherever I go, Christ is with me. Christ is with me. Whatever I do, at some level, he's saying, Christ is doing that. Let that, let that seep in, okay? Push out the effects of the world. Let the, pra- the, the, the truth that Jesus Christ is with you, is one with you. Determine modesty. Let it determine what's appropriate in your physical relationship with someone of the opposite sex. Let it determine how you should relate to your wife and to your husband and to your kids. Let that affect. Why? Because everywhere I go, I take Christ with me. When you go to work tomorrow, you take Christ with you. When you sit down in front of the computer, Christ is with you. When you go to the movie theater, Christ is with you. You never act independently. What is Paul saying? Just let it seep in. And let it affect how you live your life. The bottom line is this. What you do with your body matters to God. Your actions impact others and they impact the work of Christ. God's plan for the use of your body is not successfully ignored. There are, when I live outside of God's moral boundaries, there are ramifications in my life. And if you're here this morning and you say, Pastor Tim, I, here's an area that I have failed in. In terms of morality, sexually, I have failed. You might be saying, okay, I guess it's over for me. I have good news for you. I have really good news for you. His grace is sufficient for you. And all I have to do is appeal back to verse 11. After Paul lists that list of Incredibly sinful habits. Here's what he says. And that is what some of you were. Meaning what? There were people in the church in Corinth who had participated in prostitution, who had defiled themselves physically, who were now redeemed and changed by the grace of God and were on the page with Christ, who were totally forgiven and cleansed by the shed blood of Christ. Such were some of you. That's what Paul's saying. You know what? It, people say, well, Pastor, I've done this. I've done it. My response is, so what? Put it under the blood of Christ. Now, as I say that, let me say this. There are some sins that when they are committed, leave consequences that will live on beyond your salvation. Okay? That's so why do you young people, I, I say this strong. There are some sins that you can be forgiven for, but the consequences of the sins do not go away till eternity. Now, I do not mean the eternal consequences because that's borne by the blood of Christ. Praise God, right? But there are consequences to choices. There are consequences to relationships. There are consequences to what happens in the context of relationships. Coming to Christ and confessing your sin takes away the penalty for it, but it will not eliminate all the effects. Therefore, heed Paul's warning. Okay, Don't buy into the mood of our day that is just saying whatever you want to do is okay. Because, it's, you know, it's just people experimenting. No, there is no such thing as casual morality. It all has consequences. When I read something like what Paul says here, here's what I think. How up-to-date is the Word of God? That it can deal directly with a pattern. Everything is permissible. That, that, what's the word that 
you know, kids use today. And I've said this to you before. Get into a discussion with your kids about something. Well, whatever. Whatever. Okay. What is it? That, that's the effects of the world seeping in. It's relativism. It's pluralism. Hey, you pick your path, and I'm not going to judge you. Well, how many of you think Paul's being a little bit judgmental here? Okay, Paul is not shy about declaring biblical norms, God-given norms for morality. And I don't think he's violating the command of Christ to judge. I think he's throwing offenses to protect the heart and allow your life to be for the glory of God. Okay, let's pray together this morning. Father.